Turbalbin and Timo DeBrass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraph Study. My guest on this edition of Fangraph Study, making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance, managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. What follows, as he does every week on the program, Dave Cameron endeavors in this edition of the podcast to analyze all baseball of particular note this week. Well, one should say, uh, what is typically a quiet period on the baseball calendar, uh, that being said, is not entirely without activity, without activity this past week. For example, one finds the Los Angeles Dodgers signed not one, but two pitchers, both a left-hander, veteran left-hander Scott Casimir, and veteran right-hander from the Japanese league, Kenta Maeda. So they made two acquisitions, one final, one pending a physical, which, uh, given the Dodgers' recent history, uh, makes it something less than a sure thing, but close to a sure thing. One also finds uh, rumors of the Chicago White Sox signing Alex Gordon. How would Alex Gordon fit on the Chicago White Sox? What use would he be of to them? Is he? And what use would the White Sox be Alex Gordon, more to the point? I forget if we actually discuss that at all. Regardless, Dave Cameron addresses some of these things also. Moreover, Cameron provides a uh, a sense of what a day at his house is like for a visitor. And if you ever want to just like make yourself really angry for ten hours, um, I highly recommend it. It's an amusing characterization. That um, now uh, more amusement to follow. But before that, allow me to burden you with a sponsor's message. The sponsor is Draft and the Draft app. Are you familiar with DraftKings or FanDuel or any other number of daily fantasy sports games? They're all different. They're all inferior to Draft, I'm prepared to say. Draft, of course, is the first such daily fantasy sports game designed exclusively for mobile devices. Here's how you play. After registering with Draft, you find a friend or an internet stranger, anyone who's who's part of the Draft universe. You each select five players by means of a snake draft. Those players accrue fantasy points by virtue of their achievements in actual games. Actual, You know how fantasy sports work. At the end of the day... Either you have more fantasy points or your opponent has more fantasy points. One of you is the winner. One of you is a losing loser. Now, if you're confident in your own abilities, you might choose to wager American currency. You can do that in almost every state, so far as I know. And indeed, it is not limited to baseball. And thank goodness, because baseball season is over. In fact, we are at the very depths of the baseball calendar right now. Three months on either side of us, the baseball season. But you can play professional football. You can play college football. Those seasons are coming to an end. But don't fear because basketball and hockey are also options for you. Carson, you say, probably not. But let's pretend you say, Carson, I am so curious about this. How do I acquire it? Well, if you have a device with the iOS operating system, go to the App Store. If, contrary-wise, you have a device with the Android operating system, consider going to Google Play or something like Google Play. You can download the app. You can play it. Don't tell them Carson sent you because when I say them, who do I mean? Don't do it. Just download it. We're all, everyone will be happy about it. And now uh, we are all happy about something else, which is the sponsor's message having ended. And we move on to a conversation. What is it? It is Fangraphs Studio featuring managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And it begins right now. Yeah, it's cold here. Really? How cold is cold for you? 
Uh, well, I think tonight the low is going to be 20. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's cold. Pretty, pretty chilly, yeah. Yeah. What What happens there when, when the cold – I mean, do, people, how do people, people react? Coats. People wear coats. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's uh, – we've had a strange winter. It was uh, 74 here on Christmas Day. I, mean, I think the whole you know East Coast had a very warm Christmas. But, uh, yeah, 10 days later and uh, now it's winter. Okay. All right. Yeah, I imagine 20 – uh, 20 is, I don't know, is that rare? How many times do you get that in winter? Uh, you know, there's definitely one cold stretch a year at least. Like, uh, I'm sure all the people up in, like, Maine are probably, like, laughing at me. But, you know, like, we, we generally have a week or two where it's in the 20s pretty regularly. Yeah. You know where it's not, uh, that temperature is? In Puerto Rico. Uh, that's probably true. Yeah. I would- I'd be surprised if it was in the 20s in Puerto Rico. You ever have any interest? If you ever have any interest in going to a winter league baseball game? Yeah, I've been told that I have to go. Oh, okay. Uh, people, I mean, not like by my boss. Uh, <laughs> and it, it didn't come with an offer of like pay or travel expenses. Right. Uh, I've been told by uh, people who've been that uh, it's the kind of thing someone should experience. Yeah, I, I know. What, what maybe two, three years ago now, Craig Robinson and Eric Nussbaum went to the the. Uh, the, the Caribbean series, which is then it's, I guess it moves around to each of the four major winter leagues as the host, as the host countries. But right. it was in Mexico that year. They were both living in Mexico. They went to it. seemed It seemed fantastic. Yeah, I've heard uh, winter league games are are great. What's the what do we know? I probably asked this before. We've been doing this podcast for what five years now. Oh, uh, um, maybe even longer. Yeah. I started writing for Fangraphs the same week I got married, and I've been married for over six years. So, yeah, I feel like there were some podcasts a while ago, back when we used to have like a round table with like Matt Clausen and Joe Polakowski. Yeah, uh, those seemed like a really long time ago. Yes, and I would not advise anyone to listen to them. Yeah, they no, were, let, ter- they were let, terrible. Let me rephrase that. I would advise, uh, I would advise everyone not to listen to them. Right, we should burn those. Yeah, that's, I don't know if you can burn, but we could we could remove them. I don't think anyone would notice. <laughs> yeah. They're pretty miserable. The sound quality is bad. Uh, you have Matt Clawson, I mean, a terrific gentleman, Matt Clawson, and a good baseball analyst. But one, he, and this is probably something that has allowed him to succeed as a PhD candidate, ex- very thorough. Yeah, he talked. He talked. Mm-hmm. You like you think like you listen to this podcast. And you're like, man, I wish Cameron would shut up. Yeah, uh, you would think that more about Matt Clawson. <laughs> well, he go, he was he would just go back and he would have to to define every term and uh, you know qualify every yeah. every assertion he made. Oh, that's right. I mean, he, he was thorough. I think that's the right word for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, podcast not known for thor- thoroughness. It's not but the, especially this one. No, it's not the it's not the best medium for it, is it? There's a, yeah. there's one that I like. You ever listen to this In Our Time, hosted by Melvin Bragg? I have heard it maybe twice. Okay. I've, I've uh, I will not say I'm a regular listener. Yeah, it's fine, but it's it's good if you want to like uh, you can learn about like the you know Pompeii. You can learn about a volcano in Pompeii. They yeah. brings in three scholars uh, to discuss either something historical or, or literary from the past. You know, I have a I have a podcast you should check out. What's that? It's called Serial. You may, maybe you've heard of it. I have heard of it. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah, that's my podcast recommendation. Actually, I, I, I've only like listened to like the first two episodes of this year and I got bored. So I'm not even like really recommending season two. Just listen to season one. That was pretty fun. Oh wait, so season two is out now. Is that right? Yeah, they're doing Bo Bergdahl. 
the oh. guy who like uh, escaped or got captured in Afghanistan. Okay. The first couple episodes were actually pretty interesting, and then I realized I didn't care. Yeah. Anymore. The first season of Serial, you know, that's a real, you're really going out on a limb. Uh, yeah, I was uh, going for the under-the-radar pick. Yeah, well, it's yeah. Like, it's like my wife, uh, Callie, has a pin on one of her bags, or maybe it's her jacket, that says, it says, I love books. Yeah. And uh, I, I, uh, well, I will sometimes say that she's making a, you know, a pretty, uh, uh, a polarizing, a polarizing statement. Well, I mean, the fact that she loves all the books, like, you should, like, test it and, like, bring her the worst books ever. It's true. Like, yeah, hey, do you love books? Have a book. And then it could be, like, Mein Kampf. And be like, hey, do you love this book? <laughs> I'll ask her if she loves Mein Kampf next time. <laughs> I hope your wife's not Jewish. She's not. Okay, good. She's not. I wish, but she's not. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, God. Well, part of this is delaying. You wrote about Alex Gordon today, didn't you? I did. Nice segue. Right. So here we here, – let's ask – so you're writing about Alex Gordon. I think there – were there rumors regarding the White Sox and Alex Gordon? There was a tweet a from tweet. Bob Nightingale okay. who uh, is occasionally very good at mm-hmm. sourcing. And then I think he's also gotten some stuff like really wrong this winter. Okay. Well, so there has a – the position player market – now here's a, well, here's a question. Uh, are – are position players signing sort of stalled for the moment until Chris Davis decides to do something? I don't think so. I okay. think uh, Chris Davis is a Boris client, and Boris clients always just kind of do their own thing on their own timeline. And I think the people who are shopping for Chris Davis-type first baseman probably don't care too much. Uh, there's not a lot of overlap between them and, like, guys looking for Alex Gordon-style outfielders. Those are very different kinds of players. Right, and, and when you say Alex Gordon-style Outfielders, you mean those whose uh, value I mean, is... I mostly, I mostly just mean Alex Gordon. Alex Gordon I don't think right. They're right. There aren't any other Alex Gordon-style outfielders out there. Who's, who, but whose value is tied... Uh, no, this is not to say he's offensively incompetent, but a lot of his value is tied uh, is tied to his defensive ability. Right. I mean, Alex Gordon is a very good defensive outfielder who hits some, uh, you know, who hits enough to be a very good player because of his outstanding defense and good base running. Uh, Chris Davis is a, you know slugger who hits the ball really far and is bad when he doesn't do that so mm-hmm. the, the overlap of their skills is very uh, limited and in general people who are looking for a you know all or nothing a slugger are probably not going to be like well if i can't get chris davis i'll settle for this you know defensive corner outfielder the uh alex gordon is of course uh, another player with a at least a very you know a similar profile um perhaps not not age is not part of it but a similar profile otherwise is jason hayward yeah. yeah, yeah. Gordon is the old Jason Hayward. Right. And if you and missed Al- out on the young one, now you can get the old one. Right. And maybe the, one of the reasons why was there never a, a young Alex Gordon free agent? Uh, well, he did he sign an extension at some point? Yeah, yeah. He dra- was drafted out of college, so you know, college players generally uh, don't get to the big leagues until they're 23, 24 years old anyway. Mm-hmm. So even without the extension, he wouldn't have been a free agent until he was 30. But he did sign a four-year. Thirty-two million dollar contract, I think, during his arbitration years. Okay. Yeah, he was, um, and he he didn't really become this version of Alex Gordon uh, until what, maybe three or four years into his career, right? Yeah, his yeah, when he came up as a third baseman uh, with sketchy defensive ability, uh, and he you know was a, supposed to be a, like a basically college polished, uh, major league ready hitter coming out of Nebraska. Uh, you know, one of the better college hitters in a while. And then his bat struggled. He just didn't live up to the hype offensively, and he wasn't a very good defensive third baseman. And he wasn't necessarily a bust, but he looked like maybe he was just going to be like an average player. 
uh, or even a below average player. The, the first couple of years weren't good, and then they moved him to the outfield, and he became an excellent defensive outfielder, and then his bat developed uh, a couple of years after that, and, uh, and then he became like a very good borderline star. Okay, yeah. And, and, but he's now going to be a 32 year old person. Yeah. Yeah. And he's had some injury problems and, um, there's definitely risk involved. I don't, I don't think anyone's going to be given Alex Gordon, you know, six or seven years. So you're talking definitely a shorter contract. Okay. And, uh, and, and so, but there is no attachment to, to the sort of Chris Davis, uh, the Chris Davis. Is that a thing that does exist though, where you, where, um, the fate of one player is tied to a, another probably more prominent player signing? Yeah, I mean, I think we probably see that with the outfield market right now, where you want to assess Justin Upton and Alex Gordon are all still on the market. And that's probably not a coincidence, because teams who are shopping at the kind of higher-end $20 million a year free agent uh, outfield bin have options right now. And so I think until uh, one of them go off the board, the teams kind of think they have leverage and say, hey, look, you know, there's only so many teams left with money, and so many teams spent on pitching this winter. I think of like the $1.6 billion that's already been committed to free agents. It breaks down as $1.2 billion for pitchers and $400 million for, for hitters. I mean, 75% of the money spent this winter is kind of pitching. Um, so I think, uh, you know, there's probably less money left in the pool than there was before teams went really big on David Price and Zach Greinke and those kinds of players. So I think the teams that are left with money to spend, like the White Sox or maybe the Angels, uh, depending on, you know, whether they're willing to pay the luxury tax, um, or the Orioles, like kind of the teams that are left in the market, they kind of feel like there aren't that many buyers left who are going to drive prices up. And especially, you know, historically in January, prices have fallen. Uh, players start to look and say, hey, we're, we're six weeks from spring training. I don't know where I'm going to be playing next year. Uh, you know, I, I want to have some certainty in my life. I want to be able to prepare and know whether I'm going to Florida or Arizona. Um, you know, I, I want to kind of be able to settle this. And so I think we'll probably see some movement in the next week or two. Uh, but it might take one of Gordon or Upton or Cespedes to take a below-market deal, at least compared to what they were expecting going into the winter, in order to kind of break the seal and force the other teams that are still interested in signing players to realize like they don't, they can't just wait around forever and force the price to drop in, interminably. You know, you you mentioned the distribution between pitchers and hitters, roughly three quarters in uh, in favor of of those of the pitchers. What uh, I mean, is, what's the normal breakdown? Is it fifty-fifty? Well, it depends on the class of each winner, right? So if you have like really good free agent hitters, uh, you're gonna end up more um, tilted that direction. And we've seen that in prior years where I think like the Albert Pujols winter, there was, uh, you know, a bunch of good hitters and not a lot of pitching available that winter. Uh, this year it was flipped where you had Price and Granke and Cueto and, uh, you know, the be- kind of the best free agents available this winter with the exception of Jason Hayward were, uh, pitchers. But I think, you know, you, Chris Davis and Jonas Espedes and Justin Upton and Alex Gordon, these are good players too. And the fact that they're sitting on the sidelines in April or in January is a, maybe a little bit surprising. And I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see uh, how things shake out and whether this winter ends up skewing to where the teams who ended up signing pitching earlier in the offseason maybe end up regretting it. Right. I think, like, you look at the Detroit Tigers. I think, you know, if you had asked them, hey, would you would you rather have spent $110 million on five years of Jordan Zimmerman, uh, who's coming off, you know, uh, or coming up on kind of the Tommy John surgery expiration date, or would you rather save that $110 million and be sitting here right now and maybe be able to go get an outfielder that could really help you? I'm not sure, so sure the Tigers are better off with a good, not great pitcher with injury problems than having $110 million left and Upton and Gordon and Cespedes sitting around looking for a place to sign. Right, so it's maybe uh, things tilt towards the advantage of the teams, as with, with some exceptions, uh, uh, as the offseason uh, carries on. 
Yeah, I mean, the later, it, I mean, it works basically the same way, like any kind of, uh, uh, sale, uh, works in, in real life, right? Like if you go early and you want to have like kind of the, the selection of picking, you know, uh, the best fruit or whatever it may be, uh, you know, if you think of something that has an expiration date, like you go early, you get the largest selection, you pay the most because you're getting the kind of the pick of the litter. Uh, but if you go towards the end when like the seller is like, hey, look, this thing's like starting to brown a little bit, this avocado needs to be used today, hope you like guacamole because there's not a lot else you can do with this, uh, you know, you're probably going to be able to talk them down because they're, their value is about to go to zero or at least close to it. Like, you know, if you buy a Christmas tree on December 24th, you're going to pay less than if you bought it on December 1st. So at least you should if you're a decent negotiator. Um, and so I think that's kind of true in baseball. The, the teams who sign players early are getting to pick which free agents they want to sign, and so they pay, pay a premium for that. And then, you know, the teams that kind of sit around and say, well, we'll just take whatever's left over uh, because then at that point we have the leverage and the players need a place to play and we're the only ones with money left. They kind of have to just like end up with the leftovers, but they can get those leftovers at a discount. So, so why would Gordon to the White Sox make more sense than either Cespedes or or Upton? Uh, well, I think you know, it, depending on if you so if, if we take Nightingale's report and assume it's true, which it may not be. Uh, a lot of these you know kinds of Twitter rumors end up to not be true. But if we assume that it is true, and that the White Sox are looking to limit their long term liability and they only want to do a three year deal. Uh, you're not going to get Justin Upton, who's 28, or, you know, Jonas Cespedes, who's 30, to sign a three-year deal, unless you give them a, you know, really high annual average value and probably an opt-out after next year so they can re-enter the market. That's the, your only chance, is you'd have to probably pay them 25 or $30 million a year and, you know, let them hit the, hit the market again next winter, so you'd really only be getting one year of their production. Uh, and with Upton, you're having to, you know, a first-round pick. In order to do that, it's not a great idea. Um, whereas Gordon is 32, and as we talked about, his injury problems and his uh, values tied heavily to defense. I, you know, I had him pegged as a four-year deal going into the winter. Uh, it's not unreasonable to think that he could negotiate himself down to three, especially if he got, you know, a slightly higher annual average value and end up still being a good deal for him, where for Upton or Cespedes to go from six or seven years to three years is a, a huge concession, and especially for Cespedes. Like, if you're 30 and you're a physical athlete with – really good tools and a lot of kind of lacking polish, which I think is a pretty good way to describe Cespedes. Uh, the ability to hit the free agent market again when you're 32 or after your 32 seasons, so you're selling like 33 through 37 or something, uh, as an unpolished tools guy and, and those tools could easily diminish over the next few years, that's not a great, not a great idea. Uh, I think Cespedes is, this is probably his best chance to get five, six, seven years and he should just get as much money as he can this winter. Yeah. Do we know what do you think about how Cuban players might age relative to? I mean, I assume they're they're largely the same physically, but of course they've they've typically followed different developmental uh, development patterns. Yeah, I don't think we know. I haven't seen like a good study on you know Cuban player aging curves that are specifically different. Uh, I think we should probably assume that Cuban players are going to age most like other players. Uh, but right, there is lost development time, especially guys who have to, you know, sneak off the island and go maintain residence in another country and, you know, they lose significant playing time. Some of these guys get suspended from the national team, you know, at least they used to, uh, because it was a, a thought they were going to try and defect and so like they would end up not playing even while they were still in Cuba. Um, so it could be a, you know, a situation where perhaps the lost development time allows them to develop a little bit later and so like perhaps there's more growth left for a guy like Cespedes than an average 30 year old, but that's pretty speculative. We could also just argue like that lost development time you can't ever get back. We don't know. Right. Yeah, and that's what I was sort of thinking. I, uh, having watched a little bit of Cuban baseball, um, uh, the, the pitching always seems to be a, a bit of a concern. Like you look at the strikeout rates, they tend to be quite low. 
And uh, furthermore, the velocities tend not to be really the same as the, the sort that we're finding in the United States. Right. Yeah, it's definitely a lower level of competition. What it does facing that lower level of competition into your mid-20s and how that affects your performance in your late 30s, mm-hmm. uh, maybe maybe a team has figured that out. I would hope that there's been some research from teams that are spending a lot of money on these guys. But in the public sphere, maybe this, if someone's listening and wants a research project to talk, tackle, this could be an interesting one. Uh, the trick will be it's going to be a small sample size. You're just not going to have a lot of, uh, you know, uh, you're not going to have a big number of, you know, Cuban 37-year-olds. Right. Um, let's see. At least as long as you're looking at baseball players, there are a lot of Cuban 37 year olds. But yeah, right. They won't I mean, you. maybe just like slightly fewer than 36 year olds, probably. Yeah, I think that's probably true of most age, right? There'll be <laughs> slightly fewer 38 year olds, and yeah, kind of how, kind of how life works. And then you get down to uh, unless there's a, a sort of um, uh, for some reason there's a population spike, like with right, the, like with the baby boomers or something. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. What generation are you? Are you? I think I'm on the line, right? Yeah. So I'm not quite Generation X. I think yeah. I'm like uh, right in between Generation X and Generation Y, or whatever the whatever the the term was that they called Generation Y. But I'm like kind of sandwiched in between them. Right. Millennials, maybe is that another word you've heard? Yeah, but I think millennials are younger than me. Yeah. So, yeah. I think uh, they are. Yeah. Right. Because like Generation Y was just what they called the generation after Generation X, and I think I'm like at the very beginning of that. Uh, but I'm at the very end. I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm a generation X and a half. Yeah, that seems fair. The uh, well, let's see. Uh, in terms of signings, uh, there there has been another one recently, uh, and that was uh, by the Dodgers. Well, of two, of, of, I guess of two pitchers, right? Uh, one of them being Scott Casimir. Yeah, the, I think that's the one that's official. The other one is still reported, but basically done, and the Dodgers apparently take like months to finalize deals now. So, uh, this one might, the Kenta Maida deal might get announced in, you know, February or something. Right, so now they have, uh, they would appear to have a wealth of pitchers. They have, well, they have Clayton Kershaw, and then a number of pitchers who, who have at least one uh, question mark appended to them for, for whatever reason. Right, they have the best pitcher in baseball, and then a lot of guys with intriguing upside and huge downside. Like right. the, you know, they have a kind of the ace of aces, and then a lot of question marks. But all of the question marks potentially could be quite good. I mean, it's not that hard to look at this rotation and be like, eh, Brett Anderson stays healthy, and Casimir's a solid mid-rotation starter, which is what he's been the last couple of years. Um, and you know, like uh, Alex Wood is kind of the Alex Wood of before he got traded, like, a, you know, the Atlanta version of Alex Wood or something closer to the Atlanta version of Alex Wood. That's one of the better back-end starters in all of baseball. Hinjin Ryu is, uh, you know, a very good starting pitcher when he's been hel- when healthy and is theoretically going to be ready for opening day. Uh, and then you now you have Kenta Maida, who, uh, you know, I don't think we totally know, but projections kind of have him as, like, at least a decent back-end starter. And I think Zips had him as like, a very, very good pitcher. Um so, you know, like, we don't really know what Maida's gonna be. There's, uh, you know, uh, it seems like most Japanese pitchers of his ilk who have come over, like Hiroki Kuroda or Sashi Iwakuma, um, have kind of ended up being better than people thought. There were a lot of these, like, command guys who, you know, had moderate stuff who end up throwing really nasty splitters and striking everybody out with this really great split finger that don't get scouts excited before they come over and, and prove to be really good. So Maida could potentially follow in that path. Uh, we don't really know. Uh, and then after that, you know, you've got the best pitching prospect in baseball and Julio Urias and uh, Jose De Leon and Mike Bolsinger and then Brandon McCarthy is going to come back from injury at some point. Um, right, they have like nine or ten deep in terms of their rotation. Uh, but after number one, you're not really sure what you're going to get. 
Right. Hey, here's a question. So Casimir got roughly the same contract, uh, received roughly the same contract, right, as uh, the Dodgers had agreed upon in principle pending a uh, – sorry, pending a a physical with Iwakuma, yeah? Uh, Sort of. He got about the same amount in terms of money. So he got 348 when I think Iwakuma's deal was going to be 345. The primary difference is that Casimir got an opt-out after the 2016 season. So from the Dodgers' perspective, they might only get one good year. Like if if, uh, Casimir's good in 2016, they're going to lose him. Where with Iwakuma, uh, they probably had a little bit more upside. And if he was good in 2016, they would have still had him for the next two years. Okay. All right. Well, do you have a sense of, I mean, is that the reason why they wouldn't have pursued Casimir over Iwakuma uh, to begin with? Yeah, Iwakuma is cheaper. I mean, then you talk about the fact that I mean, it's only a million dollar a year less in terms of annual average value uh, or in terms of salary. But, you know, the fact that you don't have to give him an opt-out makes that deal less risky. Uh, yeah, obviously, they found something in his physical that they didn't like, and they assumed that he was more risky than signing Casimir. But I think when they thought Iwakuma was healthy, uh, he was less expensive than Casimir. Casimir would have to – what do you think – let's see. If he were to pitch uh, like he had the past three years, yeah. Um, what, do you think he would opt out after the – Yeah, I think so. I think uh, for a guy like Casimir, it's basically a health risk, right? Like right. Uh, as long as he's healthy, he's probably going to be a pretty decent pitcher. They're not going to necessarily be great, but he could be like a solid mid-rotation guy who gives you, you know, 180, 200 pretty good innings. If he's If he does that and he has 232 left on his deal – won't be that hard for him to get a better contract than that next winter. Um, but so I think, you know, he's, he's got the obviously long, uh, track record of health problems from before his comeback. And, um, you know, if something crops up and his arm falls off, he's basically got a $32 million insurance policy. Uh, but I would think that if he pitches kind of as he has the last three years, uh, he'll hit free agency again next winter. Yeah. I guess I'm curious as to, and we talked about opt-out contracts, uh, some length because, um, there have been a number of them this offseason. Like basically every pitcher got one. Yeah, right. And I guess I'm curious as like what the window, you said it's, it's essentially like a defense against like total attrition, right? I mean, uh, but what the window would have to be in terms of performance for a pitcher either to exercise or not exercise the opt-out? Well, I think we don't really know because we haven't seen opt-outs be nearly this common as they've been handed out this winter. And there's a lot of uncertainty about what the economic kind of state of MLB will be next winter because this collective bargaining agreement expires at the end of next season. So next winter, next offseason is going to be the first under the rules of a new collectively bargained agreement, which will hopefully be done before the uh, offseason starts and, you know, we can avoid a labor stoppage. But there's some chance that, like, the luxury tax could go up dramatically. I think that's going to be probably one of the first things the Players Association asks for mm-hmm. is uh, $189 million uh, current threshold to probably go well over $200 million. Which could potentially bring in some inflation. If you, you know, if you have a teams like the Yankees and the Angels and some of these uh, teams that have historically spent a good amount of money, who are you know trying to get under the cap or stay right under the cap. In the Angels' case, uh, they don't want to pay the tax. Uh, if the tax goes up to 220, 230 million dollars, all of a sudden you could say the, the Angels might be like, ah, oh, we have 50 million to spend now, or the Red Sox could say the same thing. And um, so I think you know you could see some significant inflation next winter. Uh, if the luxury tax goes up a lot. Or, you know, we could see some other structural changes that cause league minimum players to cost significantly more. Maybe the league minimum goes up to a million dollars. And then teams say, well, no, look, now I'm allocating twice as much money to the back half of my roster. I'm going to spend less on free agents. And so we just, you know, we don't really know. And I think the uncertainty is why uh, maybe both sides are okay kind of saying, well, you know, if you opt out next winter and then we can reevaluate under the new set of rules, it's not the worst thing in the world. Wait, so uh, so tell me about the luxury. The luxury tax threshold is currently what? 
189 million. 189 million. Yeah. And uh, how long is it? How long has it been that? Well, it started at 178 million during the current CBA, and which, I think which it was five years. It's been a five-year CBA. Okay. Uh, so I think. I think it started at 178 for the first two years, and then it went up to 189, but it could have been three and then two, but it switched halfway through the CBA. Okay, so it's gone up $11 million roughly? Yeah, right. Which is not... Uh, not a lot. I think like uh, one of my plans for the for the post for this week is to kind of look at like the luxury or the luxury tax threshold as like a percent of like kind of where it fits in the hierarchy of team payrolls because it used to be like when the luxury tax was introduced to like the Yankees were the only team who paid it forever it was basically a Yankee tax um, and no other team was even really all that close to it and now like a lot of teams are either right next to it or some have gone over uh, the Dodgers went over by 100 million dollars or something I mean they crushed it uh, so I think you know the luxury tax is not nearly uh, as prominent relative to league payrolls as it used to be, it's it's now a much easier threshold to reach, and I think the Players Association has a lot of incentives to try and get it back towards uh, not being such an easy target or uh, allowing teams to spend a lot more than they currently are without without getting taxed. You know, uh, did it, Nathaniel Grove wrote a piece at some point in the last month looking at um, the advantages for the players and the players' union, the advantages of the salary cap. Yeah. Um, for this reason, right, is because the luxury tax, <clears throat> especially if it's sort of lagging behind inflation as as the, the current one has, has no stipulations regarding 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 minimum spending, just maximum right. spending. Right. And then the minimum spending is sort of what, just like if the the league urges teams to remain competitive or something like that. Yeah, I mean, if the, if the, like, so the best example is a few years ago, the Marlins just didn't spend enough of the money, and the Players Association slowly filed a grievance being like, look, we know how much you're getting in revenue sharing, and you're not even spending that. Forget all of the other money you're getting from, you know, TV contracts and uh, selling tickets and concessions and parking and all that stuff. You're just not even spending your revenue sharing money. And so then the, like, the league basically had to tell the Marlins, like, hey, you have to spend money. And right. And they did. They did. <laughs> like, I mean, it took a while, but they did. But what, but I think like in the NBA, for example, and perhaps the NFL is the same case, there is a salary cap. It's a hard cap, which obviously, um, has the effect of suppressing probably the highest contracts. Yeah. Uh, but teams also have a minimum which they must spend, which is usually what, 90% of the cap or something like this? Uh, I don't know exactly what it is. Right, but, but it's tied and, and it, the whole thing is that there has to be a certain amount of salary paid out as a, as a percentage of the revenue, um, received by the league. Uh, overall, yeah? Right. That's the basic concept is that, like, teams, the, the league as a whole has to pay a, essentially a fixed amount to players, uh, in this window. Like, they can't spend more than this, they can't spend less than that. Uh, and so every year it'll be between this and that. Uh, and it kind of sets up a, you know, uh, right, a, a floor and a ceiling. And so, like, Major League Baseball doesn't have an official floor or an official ceiling, like the luxury tax kind of acts as one, but as we've seen, like, you know, the Dodgers crushed it and the Yankees went over it for uh, like 10 years. Uh, so it's not a real limitation. It's just a, uh, an imposition that the league tries to use to discourage teams from going over that amount. But because they don't have a ceiling, they also don't have a floor. And when then we have situations like the Marlins where, you know, they just don't spend their money. I think that's maybe less of an issue now, though, when you see, like, how much the lowest payrolls have gone up in Major League Baseball over the last decade. I mean, it used to be pretty common that we'd have, you know, teams spending 10, 12, 15 million dollars on a, their total team, 20 million dollars as a payroll, even a couple of years ago, wasn't that weird? Now, like, the 28th, 29th largest payroll in baseball is like 65, 70 million dollars. I mean, the, the bottom payrolls have dramatically increased because of the television revenues. And so, I don't know that Major League Baseball Players Association will be 
as concerned with pushing up the bottom end of spending as they are trying to push the top end of spending back up to where it used to be. Hmm. That's interesting, I guess. There's been a huge compression in terms of kind of the ratio of spending between the top and bottom teams. It used to be that the Yankees would spend ten times as much as the bottom team, and now it's like, you know, two times. Yeah, you want, I guess, what, to make the game... Well, I guess there are a bunch of there are, there are a bunch of different ways. If your interest is if your interest is in parity, uh, in parity of of talent on the field, then you're more likely you're more likely to achieve it if there's parity in spending as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's fair to say that like if you allow one team to spend five to ten x another team, the team that's spending you know five hundred percent as much as the other team is going to have dramatic advantages, and so. Um, you know, the closer the payrolls are related, the more likely it is that there's going to be uh, chances for, um, you know, parity throughout the league. Yeah. And then, uh, but I guess, yeah, ultimately I have to admit that I don't care, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I do think, like, uh, parity has been very good for baseball, I think. Yeah. Uh, I think when you look back to the late 90s, when it was the Yankees winning what, three World Series in a row and four out of five, and uh, you basically had the same few franchises, not just winning every year, but really predictably getting the best players. Like basically for a good 10-year run, anytime any premium free agent went up for grabs, you kind of knew where they were going. And that's not great for baseball, and especially because teams couldn't retain their best players. I think that's probably been the biggest improvement in baseball is, you know, um, Teams now can develop superstars and keep them for the rest of their career. Where, you know, 20 years ago that wasn't necessarily the case. As soon as you got to like a market rate salary, there were only a handful of teams that could afford to really just outbid everybody else and, and put a number out there that didn't make sense for small market franchises. Now I think every franchise in baseball, if they develop a franchise player, an Andrew McCutcheon or a Paul Goldschmidt or, uh, you know, maybe let's pick a guy who didn't sign a crazy below market deal, but a Mike Trout, right? Like any team in baseball could get Mike Trout and keep him. And maybe not keep him forever, but you can keep him for a good long time, and I think that's good for the game. Right. Well, the, yes, because the alternative structure where you have uh, players leaving their teams, that ends up to be something like what you find in uh, in like professional uh, – in soccer, right? Yeah. Like, you know, if uh, – like in the Premier League, you know that the best players are going to end up uh, on, you know, Manchester City or Chelsea or maybe Arsenal or something, Manchester United, something like this. Right. Um, and very rarely, I think that I don't know the precise figures, but only like you know, you know, over the last like 30 years, only three different teams, or you know, maybe it's more like five different teams have won a championship. Yeah, I mean, um, it's, it's very, uh, uh, it's a sport driven by a few dominant franchises, which. I think it's not bad to have maybe a dominant franchise in a sport where it's like, you know, the kind of the villains that everyone can root for or root against. And, you know, I think having the Yankees play that role for baseball uh, isn't the worst thing in the world. Obviously, there's a lot of Yankee fans out there, and they draw a lot of interest. And so when they travel, then people will go see their games because the Yankees are in town. Like, it's not a bad idea to have kind of an out-of-town uh, behemoth who can draw interest in teams' road game or interest in certain, you know, you can schedule the Yankees to go play on a Monday through Wednesday and, uh, you know, Cleveland, and people will be like, ah, well, I'm going to go see a game because the Yankees are in town. But I think if you have like four or five of those franchises and they're the only ones who win, then the other 25 cities are like, oh, I'm sorry, why do I care about the sport? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, apparently uh, people still watch the Premier League, but perhaps they're just watching those uh, four or five teams and that's it. Or, you know, I think in Europe it's much more 
uh, based around your city, right? Like, because they have club soccer and it's like right. very much like every little town has their own team and, you know, they're friends you grew up watching. Like, it's a, you know, America's this giant landmass where one team is supposed to cover like seven or eight states or something and like, especially out west, like, you know, uh, the Mariners the, uh, the team from like eastern Montana. It's a 10 hour drive. Like, no one's gonna have this like really big affinity for something that's 800 miles away. Right. The, um, uh, just one report from last week. Cameron, apparently, uh, uh, reader Greenaway55 says that you can kind of take the BART to AT&T Park, but it's easier to take the Muni train. But uh, regardless, uh, both are both are difficult. Uh, okay. That we a, we had a conversation yeah, about getting to AT&T. But that was also like a, a statement with no segue. I didn't see that coming. Well, this, the segue is that we're basically over. Oh, so you basically just said like, oh, Cameron's still talking, but I have to get this thing in. Yeah, well, no, I don't have to. I wouldn't really have to end it. We're not on broadcast or anything. You know what I? We're giving an example of what it's like for when the the podcast guy won't shut up. This is. (laughs) Have you segueing back to our original conversation? Have you played Have you played Monopoly recently? Not recently. Yeah, I played over break. I watched my family play. Mm. Really, is what I did because I was interested. Uh, And then I read. This may this may not surprise you. There are people who are who have thought quite a bit about Monopoly. Yeah, I think it's like a, a broken game in that you can solve it exactly right. Like you, there is a definite best strategy that will win out more often than not. Yeah. Well, part of it starts with luck because you have to land on properties. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, right. It's not a broken game in the sense like if you do this, you will win, but it's not one where varying strategies can win. Regularly, like there's clearly a you should do this. Yeah. Do you know that? Uh, do you know that most people play Monopoly? I'm not gonna say they play it wrong, but they don't want to play it. They don't play it according to the instructions in the box. Right. It isn't like the the you get the money from uh, going whatever, like someone lands on jail or whatever that thing is. Free Planet parking. Go. Like that's yeah for free parking. Like that's yeah. not actually in the rules, right? No, 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 it's not. And there's another one which is, uh, well, yes, if you land on a property, if a, if one player lands on a property and decides not to buy it. Um, what's supposed to happen next is uh, there's supposed to be an auction. Right. Uh, but I think that that also rarely happens. Yeah, no, no one does that. Yeah. Do you know what I did over the break? Mm, you watched a crying child? Uh, yeah. Actually, he didn't cry that much. And oh. he had a birthday and he got a lot of toys, so now he's really happy. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, I watched a Netflix documentary that's uh, gaining traction on social media called Making a Murderer. And if you ever want to just, like, make yourself really angry for 10 hours, um, I highly recommend it. Like, if you just, like, like I'm not mad enough at the world, this is how you become really pissed off. What, 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 yes, I, I saw that on my uh, on the Netflix there. What is it? Why do I? It's, it's basically a, uh, it's the serial podcast on TV, but with a different story. I mean, that's kind of the easiest way to describe it. So it's about an old crime and kind of walks through the case and the guy getting convicted of uh, rape that he uh, spent 18 years in jail for uh, that he turns out he didn't do and <laughs> he got let out of jail and then they rearrested him for another crime and uh, anyway it's a it's a kind of a long term kind of uh, trial story and man will it make you mad I don't know yeah well I suppose hmm. I suppose uh, I don't know what what's the satisfying part of it how well it's told. Uh, I mean, it's interesting in the sense of like, I think most people don't get kind of get behind the scenes looks at how things work. And obviously, you know, any documentary is probably skewed to one side or the other. So you have to take some of it with a grain of salt. We don't know exactly what happened and we don't, we can't just say, oh, well, here's what the documentary showed me. This is definitely the truth. Uh, but there's, you know, like actual courtroom footage where you can kind of see, uh, you can hear the phone calls between people in jails and, and it's not like a, 
you know, it's not one of these like Michael Moore where he's telling you what to think necessarily. It's not just you're just kind of watching like uh, prosecutors and defense attorneys argue in court evidence. And it's kind of fascinating to see like, oh, I didn't know it worked that way. And then, you know, some of the times when like there's a few things in particular that I think when you watch it, you're just going to want to like throw something at your TV. How, how, how long is the, is the film? Uh, well, it's 10 episodes and I think each one's like an hour, an hour and 10 minutes. So oh, it's probably okay. pushing, pushing 11 hours total. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's long. And like at, n- at no point are you happy. You're, it's, like, <laughs> it's, it's just, you're just mad the whole time. Uh huh. Yeah. How do you avoid getting, uh, getting accidentally uh, charged with murder? Uh, what well, seems like don't live in Wisconsin, don't be poor. Uh, yeah, those are probably the first two things I would yeah. say. Yeah. Well, that's good. I I used to do both those things. <laughs> okay, well, like, you you probably didn't live in the same part of Wisconsin as probably as not. This. Hopefully not. But yeah, yeah I think uh, it's definitely a look at like how poor people and uneducated people can really not defend themselves to a large degree. Yeah, yeah. Well, that uh, it's already uh, I'm already distraught. Yeah, Thanks. be mad just thinking about what. All right. Well, let's get you uh, let's get you off. I think you've uh, fulfilled your obligation here, Cameron. Uh, okay. Especially relative to how much is actually going on in terms of baseball. Yeah, we. I think we made chicken salad out of you know lemons. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds like a pretty good chicken salad. I like have it in my chicken salad. Uh, so let me say, let me say this, let me say thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that has been Dave Cameron. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.